but now it's my pleasure to introduce Pastor Cooper. Uh, he is, uh, as I said, I, like to, I just like to say the word Allegheny. That's why I say it every time. I don't get to say that word, but there's a river up there, and he, he's from that neck of the woods, and he's always been a tremendous blessing to us. So we're, you'll be encouraged by God's word this morning from Pastor Cooper. Uh, we love and appreciate you, sir. Glad to be here this morning. If you would have come early, you would have got to hear Pastor Clark. But now you get me. <laughs> I pastored a non-denominational church for 40 years. It's uh, near the Allegheny River, the Monongahela River. The Ohio River, Pittsburgh, PA, a little town just northeast of Pittsburgh called Apollo, Apollo, Leechburg, Vandergrift. There were some people here uh, last week out at the communion. There was a big tall guy here. Oh, he's a big guy. He could have been a linebacker for the Steelers. And uh, he said he was from, um, I think it was Butler. And right around him, including myself, about three or four people jumped him afterwards, and we told him all the towns around where we lived and that he was welcome here any time because he could feel at home. I was interviewed um, by a television uh, broadcast uh, back in the ministry, and when I got to the broadcast, I didn't know what was going to happen. We had our Christian school kids there, and... Of course, they sang, and, and that was part of it, too. But then he interviewed me on live television, and he said, Why do you pastor a non-denominational church? In fact, why do you attend a non-denominational church here? And my answer to him was uh, twofold. First of all, I said, when I was in seminary, there were 666 denominations. Think about that. And then I said to him, do you think when you get to heaven there are going to be denominations? Do you think God will, like, put the Presbyterians up north, because they're the frozen chosen anyway? He'll put those wild Pentecostals down south. Over here, there'll be the uh, Methodists, and the Baptists will be over here, and all the others kind of around in a circle, and you can't get too close to any of them because they'll fight you. He said, no, I don't think there'll be any denominations in heaven, and I said, you're right. Do you know why? Because God's going to straighten us all out. None of us have some sort of edge, and we've got the truth, and no one else has it. In fact, the church that says, if you don't belong to us, you're not going to go to heaven. It's one of the first classifications of a cult. We really believe that God is going to straighten us all out and that we'll be the body of Christ, that we'll be in unity, that we'll be fitted together perfectly. Maybe for the first time you'll understand why God made you exactly the way He did. 
why you were made a man or why you were made a woman. Why you were born when you were born. All the details of your life will begin to work out and you'll begin to understand, perhaps then, how great a God we have, how wonderful a Lord He is. I'm going to talk to you this morning about the confidence that we should have in Christmas. Christmas confidence. That's the theme. Why we should be so thrilled with the Lord and how good He is to us. We're going to look at that Christmas confidence this morning. And we want to understand that we can have Christmas confidence by believing God, by believing the Word of God, by believing the Bible. In fact, if I can uh, talk to somebody and they believe what the Bible says, we may have different interpretations about some of the things. But if they believe the Bible, if they believe Jesus was born of a virgin, if they believe that He was crucified and then resurrected and is coming again, I can have fellowship with that person. And so that's what we want to become, people that believe the Word of God. We want to believe the Word of God this morning because of prophecy. We're going to look at some prophecies that go way back. Then we're going to look at some prophecies that are more current, only 2,000 years old. And then we'll see how God is working today to fulfill His Word among us. Revelations 13.8, you'd say, what are you going there for? That's at the end of the Bible. What's talking about something that occurred before time as we know it began? It says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life. The Lamb of God, notice this, slain before the foundation of the world. Think about that a moment. Slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And here's what that means. It means that God knows the beginning and the end. He knows the past, He knows the present, and He knows the future of all things. And God is omniscient. It's a big word, but it just means everything that there is to know, God knows it. He knows everything about us. He knows everything about politics. He knows everything about the world and everything in it from times past to present and then into the future. He knows everything that there is. He knew that Adam and Eve and you and I would sin. And he devised a plan of salvation before the world was formed. Now think about that a moment because... You just can't pick out parts of the Bible and say that you believe them. You really need to believe it all. It's all inspired work. It's all given by the Holy Spirit through the prophets. Sometimes their personalities are allowed to shine through, but it doesn't matter. It's still the Word of God. It's still the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So before the world was formed, 
Think about that for a moment because it means this, that God had this plan in his mind before even earth existed. In fact, if you go back to creation, it's a rather remarkable story. First, God separates on the first day the waters. The second day, then he says, let there be light. But it wasn't sunlight yet. The third day, earth is formed. And when the earth, the dirt, is formed, he creates living things like all the herbs, all the trees, all the fruits. Everything that's going to thrive on the earth is formed on the third day. And on the fourth day, get this, this really messes up science. It says on the fourth day, God created the sun and the moon and all of the stars. So much for the Big Bang Theory. This is your God at work. Well, how did things thrive on earth before there was a S-U-N? They could thrive on the earth because there was an S-O-N. God is the light of the world. He's the one that can shine forth in all His glory. In fact, when you look in the Scripture, it proclaims something rather remarkable. It says in the New Jerusalem that God is the light thereof. So we need to understand that there is a powerfulness to God. Well, that takes in kind of like a Scripture that says God has prophesied all this was happening before anything was formed. He had it in His mind. This omniscient God. Well, I'd like to make it more personal. I'd like to know, I'd like to be able to say, God has all knowledge about me, about the things that I go through. He has knowledge about you and all the things that you go through. Nothing catches Him by surprise. In fact, the Bible says if you're a believer, you're sealed unto the day of your redemption. Nothing can touch you without God's approval. That doesn't mean everything's going to go the way you want it to. But it's going the way God wants it to. And everything that happens to you from the hand of God is going to be better for you than you can imagine. All things working together for good. I was uh, riding my bike. I, I do that every other day because I go on these marathon runs. I do it every other day because it takes a day to recoup after that. I was riding across to Winchester. I was turning into kind of like a shortcut down to the Rotunda West, but I had to cross a traffic light. And when I got there, I was still riding, and the guy who was in the lane who was going to turn right, he signals me to go ahead. There's a stoplight there. He signaled me, but the light had turned green. The guy in the middle didn't signal me, and he was still coming. And he was coming with no stopping in mind because the light was green for him, and here was this bike going right out in front of him. Well, um, I heard the brakes squeal. In fact, twice. He missed me by about six inches. 
And when, um, when I looked back in my rearview mirror, he was looking at his car, not believing it had stopped. It was a, uh, it was a newer car. Those little circles were on the front of it. Audi. I don't know if it had that braking system, you know, that kind of spots somebody when you don't see them. But whatever happened, I am glad it happened. And I thank the Lord the whole way home. I thank you, Jesus. I mean, I'm thanking you. How wonderful it is to know that God looks out for you. That nothing can touch you. That you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Now... I'm older. In fact, I just had a birthday. My birthday falls almost on Thanksgiving. It's, this year it was a little afterwards, November 28th, and I hit uh, 71. And that didn't bother me too much because I, I don't feel like I'm 71. <laughs> I might look it, but I don't feel like it. So um, I'm reading through the Scripture. It was... Um, the daily reading. I, I have it set up so I read through the Bible completely each year. I was reading the passage that deals with David. It's a remarkable passage because it talks about how old he was when he became king. He was 30. How many years he was king over the land of Hebron, seven years. And then 33 years, the capital moved then to Jerusalem. That's where he was king. So if you add the 7, the 33, that's 40 years. And he was 30 years of age when he became king. And I'm saying all that to say this. The next, next passage, 1 Chronicles 29:28. if you'd like to look at it sometimes. It says this about David. And David died... At a ripe old age. Do you know how old he was? Seventy. How many of you are at that ripe old age right now or a little more? I like what Pastor Clark said this morning. He says, when you get older, you start to think that you want to make days count. That you don't know how many days you've got left. And if you're a Christian, you want to make sure that you're using all those days with as much wisdom as you can. Because life isn't going to... You've already lived most of your life. So that's, uh, that's kind of a haunting thing to know that you already are at a ripe old age. We're going to look at another passage. It's, it's kind of a familiar passage to me, but maybe not fitting in your mind to Christmas. I'll show you how in a moment. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all the cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. Those those words, enmity and bruise thy head, are significant and prophetic words. If you would go back just a a moment, when you're reading the Scripture, you always should ask some questions. 
because when you read it, you can always find out something maybe you didn't know before or maybe you hadn't thought of before while you're reading it. Let me, uh, let me read this one too and then we'll go back. And to Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothe them. Let's go back to the previous uh, passage now. God said to the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all the animals, above every beast of the field. And when I looked at that for a moment, I thought, well, wait a minute. If the serpent was cursed so that he would crawl on his belly, what was his ability before that? If the curse was to crawl, what was the serpent like before the curse? Probably the serpent walked upright, just like us. And isn't it amazing, as the serpent speaks, Adam and Eve aren't amazed. I mean, they're listening to what he says. Eve is fascinated by the words. Was this animal able to speak even before the curse? And it makes you stop and think about how things work together. If, if the serpent was cursed, and you know, that wasn't the devil. It was the serpent. If he was cursed, was there some responsibility on the serpent's part so that as he spoke, he was accountable for what had happened to him that allowed Satan to speak through him? and tempt Eve. All these things kind of make you wonder. And it's okay to wonder when you look at the Scripture. It's okay not to have all the answers. It's okay not to know, but it's great to be inquisitive and try to understand a deeper meaning of the Word. Now, in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity. That word's a little bit hard to understand. I'll give you a definition. The definition of enmity means that you are, in fact, hating that. You are um, you're, you're deciding, in fact, that uh, I think I have it up here on the screen somewhere, Roger. Enmity means hostility. It means um, hatred, openly afflicting or aggressive. That's basically when he says he puts enmity between the serpent and the woman or mankind. How many of you are fond of snakes? No, me, me either. <laughs> I, I, I don't kill black snakes, but I kill just about every other kind. Black snakes probably do some good. And they're not poisonous. But as far as being close to other snakes, I, I'm going to, I'm not going to do that. In fact, uh, my wife who's sitting in the back, our, our, our door at home had a little slit of air, that little piece of rubber that uh, fastens when you, when you shut it to keep out dirt and so on, must have it must need replaced, honey, <laughs> because a little snake must have come through. That's my theory. 
a snake might have come through there and it came into the kitchen. This was not a pleasant thing for my wife. And she took care of that snake pretty fast. Now, I didn't tell her that when I went downstairs, our house was built in 1936. So it was built, the foundation is built out of uh, field stone. And it's put in place and then cement worked around it. I was down there um, when we got back from Florida last year. And up in the rafter, the floor joists where the wires kind of string through, there was a six-foot-long skin of a snake. We have a snake in our basement, honey. (laughs) Probably a black snake, I hope. Probably something taking care of the mice. There's this kind of animosity. and When it says enmity, hatred... It's almost like that. I've only really ever met one man that didn't, like, didn't uh, hate snakes. His name was Dr. William Hosp. Anybody ever heard of him? He's from the Miami area. And he ran the Miami Serpentarium. Ring a bell? He milked snakes. He got the uh, venom out of them. And we went there to see him just because I never heard of anything like this before. And he was talking about, you can go through and see, like Tor, see all the snakes in the world practically. But then he has this several times a day. He milks snakes, and you can get into an area where he was doing that, and he has an audience there. It's kind of separated by just a single bar across on this side, the other side. He's up on the stage. The center is open, and he brings in boxes, and then as he opens up the boxes, he pulls the snakes out. And they're poisonous snakes. These are the ones he's milking. He takes the snake and he makes it bite on like a Petri dish, and then the venom runs out of that. That venom is studied later, and it can be used to help people that are suffering from certain uh, pain areas in their life. doesn't kill them. (laughs) He... he, uh, he, he's able, this is able to be used. In fact, the Miami Serpentarium moved to Punta Gorda. The laboratory's down there now, in case you'd ever want to go. <laughs> Anyhow, he says, most snakes, you know, the more poisonous they are, the more docile they are. So you can reach in, you know, and grab them. There's one exception, he says. It's the King Cobra. And as he opened up the box on the King Cobra, it jumped up like this. And it started looking over the crowd. His comment was, it's deciding which one of you it wants to eat. And what he does, he takes this hand, and he, uh, he, he gets the attention of the Cobra, and it's going to strike his hand. And when it does, he grabs with this hand, he grabs the snake, and then he milks that snake. Well, it was an exciting thing to see. He did this several times. I went home and I told my brother-in-law about this, and they went the following time that they were down here. Same show, same exhibition, same cobra, you know, that he's milking, only this time the cobra jumped off the stage and went right down in between the two crowds of people. My brother-in-law was there, and he took off running like a banshee. Well, those are just 
stayed around. They were like frozen in place. Dr. Haas jumped off the stage and he, he grabbed the snake by the tail and pulled it back the same way. He caught it and then took it up and milked the snake. And he said, the smartest person here was the one that ran. There's enmity there, a hostility. The only good snake, my dad would say, is a dead snake. And that's the attitude that we have, openly afflicting aggression, that kind of feeling they have towards us, we have towards them. Also, it says, bruise thy head. It's a Hebrew word. That means, the, the Hebrew word is pronounced shuf, and it means to break or to snap or to overcome. And the reason why this is significant is because Satan's head was bruised by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of God. Let me show you how this worked. The first thing that happened when Satan rebelled and he took a third of the angels with him is that he was cast out of heaven and he wasn't permitted in those holy places. Then, at a time in the future, he'll be cast out of heaven and he'll be thrown down to the earth. That's when he enters the Antichrist. Then, after a period of time, he's cast from earth into the bottomless pit, the Bible says, for a thousand years. And then he's cast from that pit into the lake of fire forever. That's getting your head, the head of evil, bruised permanently, subdued. And so we can be uh, assured that God prophetically is going to do this to Satan. It began with the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan said, we just got to get rid of him. So if we can kill him while he's a baby, that'll stop anything that's going on there. But then God warned Joseph, and so he went to Egypt and then came back to Nazareth, Nazarene, the Nazarene uh, Messiah. And he couldn't get him there, but he thought, the way this guy is preaching, we've got to get rid of him. And so he arranges all the things that deal with the... Um, the crucifixion. He, he sees Jesus crucified, finally rid of him. It looked like a triumphant day. But then Jesus, it says, went into the lower parts of the earth and took captivity captive and took with him, stole, took what was his, the keys of death and of hell. Satan knew that he was in trouble from that point on, and he's the most he understands he's going to be defeated. He understands his time is short. And we can be glad that our Lord and Savior is able to do that. Now, coats of skin were used for a covering for Adam and Eve, and I'm almost done with this. How do you think coats of skin came about? By animals. Yeah, you're right. That's the only way you get a coat of skin. And how do you get the skin of an animal? You have to kill it. And I thought about this a while, and I thought, you know, God could orchestrate this. He could have just done it himself. But here's what I think happened. I think 
that Adam had to kill the animal. You know, the sacrificial system is being set up here, and when a sin offering is made in the sacrificial system that was began in Leviticus, and probably some of these things rehearsed it beforehand, when you sin, one hand had to be placed on the sacrifice, and the other hand had the knife that would cut the throat of that sacrifice. It was you, the sinner, doing that, not the priest. The priest gathered the blood. The priest took the sacrifice from there onto the altar, took blood from the animals, sprinkled it on the horns of the altar, and the sin sacrifice was burned up completely. What if God began teaching that way back then? What if Adam, after he'd named every animal, do your animals have names? We have a little bulldog. His name is Harley. It's actually my grandson's dog. I don't know how we got it. And Harley's a very dear dog. I mean, we bulldogs have a lot of problems, I'm going to tell you right now. Nobody told us that their tail fits so tight against their rump that after they go to the bathroom, you have to wipe them. This is not a pleasant thing for my wife to do. I am never doing that. Their eyes, the little creases get scabby areas because it doesn't get enough air in there. Their eyes get messed up. There's just so many... They're, they're interbred to imperfection, is the way I would say it. There's so many things wrong with them. And they try to, try to make them look cute, but they're really kind of ugly. But we love that dog. Just like um, naming our dog would have been important to Adam when he named all the animals, When you name an animal, that's when you're showing affection for that animal. What if he had to kill the animal himself? And what if God made the coats from the skins of those animals so that it could clothe Adam and Eve, who found out fig leaves didn't work too well, who found out when they sinned, something was removed from them so that they knew they were naked. And where did Abel get the idea? that he should bring firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof for a sacrifice, if not from the very lesson that was taught his dad. And where did Abraham get it? And where did Noah? This is all before Leviticus. They offered sacrifices. God inaugurated this event this substitutionary death, because it was going to be a substitution by the Lord Jesus Christ eventually. And until that time, the fullness of time, that was handled that way. We're going to look at uh, Old and New Testament passages prophesying the birth of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the Lord himself gave you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And there are others. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 through 23, shall, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, 
for he shall save his people from their sins. Now this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. His kingdom, therefore, shall have no end. These are all prophecies that were fulfilled in the Bible. God said it was going to happen, and it did. Probably one of my favorite chapters, or verses in chapter 9 of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the name, the government, shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's go back to the previous Scripture just a moment. His name shall be called Wonderful. That's a good description for Jesus. He is a wonderful Savior. Words cannot explain how wonderful our Lord is. He's called Counselor. Here's somebody that knows you better than you know yourself. And what's remarkable about this is the counseling of Jesus, the counseling of a Christian psychologist, won't let you shift the blame. Oh, it's my wife's fault. Oh, it's, it's the serpent's fault. Oh, there's, there's somebody else. It's, it's, the, um, it's the world I live in. Oh, the devil made me do this. That's what we're sometimes given as an explanation for ourselves to get out of personal responsibility. But with the Lord, He'll lay it right on the line. You're the way you are because you chose to be that way. And now the only way for you to get the help is to admit your sin and put your faith in Me as your Savior. He's the mighty God. There isn't anything that our God cannot do. With Him, all things are possible. And He's the everlasting Father. There is no other person so wonderful as to know a Father that loves you as much as God does. And He's the Prince of Peace. No matter how much we try to have peace on earth, the only person who will bring it permanently is our Lord and Savior. He'll bring peace. In fact, maybe you enjoy some of this now. You don't even understand why you're so at peace, but you are with the circumstances that you are in. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. This is the fulfillment of those passages. 
She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so the Word of God is true. We should believe the Word of God. Finally, what I'm hoping for all of you is a white Christmas. Now, I know you're saying it never snows down this far south. You're going to have to go north. But I looked into history books. 1899, it snowed in Fort Myers. Isn't Fort Myers south of us? I'll bet it snowed here, too. That's not the white I'm talking about. When I first came down, I I sent a postcard back to some of my friends I'm enjoying my white Christmas. I was on the beach out here. The sand was all white around me. I was dingling my feet in the Gulf of Mexico in the picture, and that was my new white Christmas. You wouldn't want to do that today. The Gulf is too cold. But that gives you an idea. I'm not talking about that kind of white Christmas either. I'm talking about a white Christmas that someone, maybe all of you, can enjoy today. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as what? Snow. That's a good thing. That you be so clean that you are white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. No, I like snow. My mother called me. Um, She's nine years old. It had just snowed in Apollo. The trees were all covered with the snow. There's, it it just, um, it takes the deadness of winter and it just coats it in a beautiful layer. And she said, don't you miss this? And I said, no. You know why she doesn't miss it? Because she only sees it from inside her 75-degree house. She's not out there working in or doing anything else. I want to share these passages with you because it's the way to have a white Christmas. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Can't we all admit that we are sinners? We've all come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God commended His love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's called the Romans Road. One book tells you step by step everything you need to do to have a white Christmas. Now, what I do when the pastor prays is I always say the prayer with him, especially when it comes to asking Jesus into my heart. I just figure I can't say that too much. 
I know it's taken. I know God is in my heart, but I want him to know he's always, always welcome. And that I probably have some things that need cleaned up all the time. Things that aren't quite right. The Bible speaks about sins of omission. Those are the things we should do that we don't. Do any of you do that, sins of omission? I know I do. You know, when I used to preach three or four times a week, I had to study all the time to be prepared. But now that I'm not speaking three or four times a week, I have to discipline myself to look into God's Word. I'm not studying to preach. I'm studying because I love Jesus. Do I always do that? No. And even sometimes when I do it, it's too formal. I need to talk to Jesus more. I need His Word deep in my heart. Sometimes I don't do it like I should. I can pray. I've said so many prayers. I can say prayers in cliches. It's almost like when I was growing up, God is great and God is good. You know it. Now I lay me down to sleep. You know, it takes time to think about what you're saying to God. Sins of omission. And then there's sins of commission. Those are the things we do we know we shouldn't. That's why I invite Jesus into my heart every time I get a chance. Every night I end the night by saying, Lord, please forgive me. Surely I've done things that need your forgiveness. Open my eyes and let me see how I can become more like Jesus today. Even let me dream the things, Lord, that would be beneficial for my soul. Because you can dream junk. It doesn't help you at all. But give me thoughts, Lord, that are pure. I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll close our service with prayer and ask the Lord to give us a white Christmas. White like snow. Thank you, Heavenly Father, today. We praise You and we love You and we ask Your blessing, Lord. Especially bless this church with the whiteness of snow. The snow that's found in Isaiah. The snow, Lord, of purity. It covers us totally. There's no crevice There's no area that isn't touched by your righteousness. You're able to show us everything because we're not babies anymore. We want the things of God to become more real to us every day. We want to use the days that we have left to your honor and to your glory. Lord, if there be someone here this morning who has yet to give their heart to you, Just praying, Lord, that they'll say these very words. Father in heaven, forgive me for my sin. I know I'm a sinner. Would you come into my heart? Touch me. 
convince me of how great a Savior you are as I read your word, as I listen, Lord, to the words of wisdom. Come into my life and cleanse me from my sin. And Lord, help me to make you Lord of my life. Heavenly Father, help that person to pray words like this, words of forgiveness. So we thank you today, Lord, for all this and more that you do. Let not one person leave this place today not knowing whether they would go to heaven if they should die. We praise you today, Lord, for your goodness and your love. And ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for coming today. God bless you.